Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast, newest Bengals cornerback, Trey Waynes. Trey, how you doing, bud? Good, how are you? Our special guest is Hall of Fame offensive tackle, former Cincinnati Bengal, Anthony Munoz. I think we have the making of a you know, pretty good offensive line, a young at a couple positions. Hello, Bengals fans. I am Matt Minnick, and this is Shock Talk. Former Bengals defensive back and current NFL media member, Solomon Wilcox. I remember 2015, wasn't that long ago. I think we had one of the best losses, talented losses in the national football league. Mr. Dahani Jones. Well, how you doing, Mr. Jones? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on the show. You see, you see my see my jersey over there? We were focused on the coaches did a really great job. Coaches had a really good plan. And <clears throat> honestly, our attitude, I feel, is what carried us over. You know Nine years in the league, 31 years old, still going strong. I think the results kind of speak for themselves. Mike, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on again. Bengals director of player personnel, Duke Tobin. Yeah, we're going to build the draft board out all the way from top to bottom like we always do. Former Bengals quarterback, Ken Anderson. Do you look at today's game and think I can complete 95% of my passes? I would love to be playing today. I would have had to learn the shotgun. You know, that's something we didn't really do with Bill Walsh. I think I could have handled it. What's up, everybody? It's the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast coming at you on Wednesday evening. For those of you joining us live, I'm Anthony Cazenza, joined by my partner in crime, John Sheeran. John, how you doing, buddy? Enjoy the Super Bowl? The Super Bowl was interesting. We'll get into the reasons why. But yeah, it, it was it was good. It was nice to see this season from, I don't know if you want to call it hell, but definitely not, definitely not normal reality. So nice to see it all kind of wrapped up and it ended in a way that's very similar to us for the last 20 years. And we're, we're definitely going to get into that along with a couple of other topics here. So yeah, we, we, yeah, we've got a lot to get to, even though this, the season has been done for the Bengals for a long time, that the news kind of keeps coming. The rumor mill kind of gets going. So we've got some news and headlines to talk about some positive, some conjecture and rumor, uh, some, some negative, unfortunately. And then, we're going to do another one of our segments. We've started the past couple of shows, State Your Case, where we kind of give somewhat of a hot take or an opinion of ours, and we talk about it a little bit. So we'll do that. We've got a free agency profile as well to get to. So we're going to get to a lot tonight. Happy to have all of you with us. If you're new to the program, you can join us live every Wednesday for this deep dive analysis show that John and I put together. It's on Cincy Jungle's Facebook page. It's on our YouTube channel, so you can uh, subscribe to that. I think there's an icon there. You can click to to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We also stream live on both our Twitter accounts at Bengals OBI and Cincy Jungle's Twitter account. So happy to have all of you joining us live. If you're unable to join us live, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, all that stuff where we get your audio podcasts. Check us out. Check out the podcast from Matt Minnick. He calls it Chalk Talk. And check out Orange is the New Black 
by Ace and Zim. And leave us a review if you can. That'd be awesome. John, you, you talked about it a little bit, buddy. Not the most uh, viewing-friendly game, I guess, uh, from from some aspects in, term, in terms of the Super Bowl. I guess, you know, we look at that through uh, the Bengals' lens. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just one second. But before the Super Bowl, there was the NFL Honors Show, right? Um, and in that, unfortunately, the NFL, in its infinite wisdom, they did kind of what the Academy Awards do. They do the in-memoriam thing. And they recognize players, coaches, all kinds of people that have passed away, contributors to the league that have passed away, sadly, over the course of the last year. And for some mind-boggling reason, Ken Riley, one of the all-time leaders in interceptions in, in NFL history, was omitted in that in memoriam. And it set Bengals fans, rightly so, aflame. What Did you watch the show? Um, I, I did not see it live. But did you watch it? And what were your thoughts, if so? So that's the first thing, because I didn't actually see it. So it kind of feels a little bit weird to criticize something that was an NFL programming that I didn't actually participate in watch. But <laughs> yeah, like, uh, no, I, I've I've seen that before. Like, I've seen past NFL honors programs, usually in like normal years. I don't know what they, I guess, did for this time. I guess it was more of a virtual thing. Maybe, I, I, again, I still haven't seen it. But that, like, it, even if Ken Riley isn't in the Hall of Fame, and even if he isn't this prominently known NFL legend that he deserves to be, like his death was still covered like pretty greatly when it happened. Like we covered it since you know, like NFL media covered it. Obviously, um, Florida A and M covered it. He's in the uh, historically black college Hall of Fame. Like he, he's a player that everybody, a lot of people in the NFL world knows. And the fact that he wasn't here, it, it's it's inexcusable. And the fact that we don't, I don't think, I don't even think the NFL's made a statement about it to like rectify it or anything or they're not making any attempts to do so so it doesn't make any sense why it happened it doesn't really make any sense why there's silence on the subject now it is just kind of another in, in the line unfortunately of kind of some slights by the league by writers by you know multiple different uh you know sources that cover the nfl cover the cincinnati Bengals. it's just kind of another in a long line of, of public slights. Well, we were set to take the air tonight, or at least I was, and be the usual cynical, angry guy and blame the Bengals for them not giving enough recognition to their own players and ring of honor and all of that. And that was kind of where the conversation was going to go. But earlier today, there was a little bit of a, a 180. And I'm going to let you talk a little bit about it, John, because I'm going to put the story up on this because you wrote it for CincyJungle.com. I'm going to put this up here. Apparently, there is some form of a teaser of the Bengals potentially getting a ring of honor of sorts. Very unintentional teaser. It was just <laughs> it was a 10 a.m. Twitter post from the Bengals social media account, and it was just a picture of snowy Paul Brown Stadium. And then some guy, I believe his name is uh, uh, Dalton Livesay. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he noticed that there are names that are plastered like right above the the east press box window um windows as our youtube listeners and viewers can see there's anderson there's crumb crumb rye and there's actually minos to the right of crumb rye mm-hmm. like that, that's that's what sports teams do when they have a ring of honor they post their legends names up there like that and that's like a telltale sign of something so the Bengals 
you know, their, their account posted this picture. Um, Dalton noticed it. Blake Jewell eventually noticed it. I think I don't know when the tweet was deleted, but it obviously it obviously was because it's not exactly how they would they would want to announce this. Um, but funny thing is, like that 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 like is the east side of the stadium, but you can go to the gates, like the north the northern gates, and you can kind of see inside of the stadium. So if you post up like at at the gates, like where you can enter the stadium on like the northeast side, you can see like basically the entire inside of the stadium so anybody can walk up right now and, and see those those names uh, up on on the press box if like they're not if they haven't been covered up by now but yeah this is pretty much in a very unintentional way of announcing that the Bengals are in, in some way shape or form honoring their former players and if this is in the ring of honor i'm not sure exactly what it, what it what it is actually i don't know either and, you know, if I had my choice, you can't see the Munoz one on the picture that we have here. But if I had my choice of the font look, I, I would go with the Anderson one, I think. Um, it just They're kinda, all different, aren't they? They are. Yeah, they were all different fonts and, and color schemes, et cetera. So, you know, I think I, I think if I had my choice there, I would probably go with how they how they made the Anderson one look, whether that's Willie or Ken. I'm not quite sure. That's um, a great point. Yeah. It could be Willie. Yeah, I could, think of that. Yeah, it could be Willie. It could be Ken Anderson. It could maybe they got two Andersons up there. Um, look, I I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but this is a you know a, a like you said, this is what teams do when they have a Ring of Honor, and this is the the aesthetics of it around the league when they when they honor their players, they have them up for all to see. Usually, their numbers, and then they you know they have them up in their home stadium to to brag about who they've had in their history and that's what this that's what this looks like now i don't know if that's all this is going to be we don't know when this is going to be unveiled and now now you know they may have to scramble and be like oh man the cat accidentally got got out of the bag here this was as of uh you know as of this morning so uh, wednesday morning so i mean this is this is kind of new stuff but uh you know I, I i don't know if the ken riley thing prompted this i don't know if all of the attention that I mean, our, our show, I know uh, Jim Foster's a big proponent out there, Bengal Jim. Um, a lot of, you know, Captain Obvious, Bengals Captain, all the all these, you know, mega fans and podcasts and all of that that are out there that have been kind of saying, where is this ring of honor? I don't know if the Ken Riley thing was the last straw or not, but if that's where this is headed, John, a big, a big feeling of relief for Bengals fans and something that's long overdue for sure. Yeah, and uh, Brady Nance in the Facebook comment section, he's pointing out that yeah, it kind of looks like the 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 font for the Anderson one. It looks like the font from like the Willie Anderson day. So that could actually be Willie Anderson um, instead of Ken Anderson. But I'm sure Ken Anderson would would be in the first ballot of the Ring of Honor. But Brady also pointed out that um, the Bengals posted, I think, a, an Instagram video back in like the first day of February, and you can kind of see that the names are not. Um, are not are not there at least 10 days ago so this kind of brings back to the ken riley point because some people were mad that you know it that the ken riley omission from the from the nfl honors was a way to also criticize the Bengals for not having a ring of honor because you you kind of sense the hypocrisy there like the Bengals are outraged that their former players are not being honored the way that they should when the team itself does not honor their players the way that they should so it doesn't excuse Obviously, like it, it like it is it, no, there's no way to to deflect the blame away from the NFL in that situation. That wasn't the, that was never the point. But it's also saying like you know if you guys aren't going to do this, why should you expect the NFL? Like even if it's a baseline way of just respecting 
a someone who passed away that was a great influence on the game like if you aren't the ones that are going to do this why do you would you expect the nfl who has yet to induct anyone else aside from anthony Munoz into the hall of fame why should you expect them to treat them the way that you guys haven't treated them so i i, I don't know uh, I, I don't know if this is what prompted it it seems like this is something that they would have to have planned like long before what happened with ken riley or in this past week but this is also the team that when they do something drastic it's usually you know later rather than earlier and yeah. usually something desperate kind of prompts it in, in itself so maybe it is maybe it isn't i don't know but it does seem like kind of a weird coincidence. Great points. And look, when when it comes time for these Hall of Fame votes, when it comes time for for certain teams and their players to get attention to get ha- into the Hall of Fame, I put out a tweet. I don't know if anyone really looked at it very very hard or not, but basically Drew Pearson, a very good wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. I put up his stats next to Isaac Curtis, stats and accolades next to Isaac Curtis, next to Chad Johnson, and next to A.J. Green. Granted, Curtis and Pearson played in a much different era of football than did Johnson and Green. But, I mean, the accolades are the accolades. Pearson gets in, Curtis is not, and others, uh, you know, like Chad Johnson's not even getting any run at this point. Um, You know, I I think A.J. Green maybe needs to add a little bit to his resume. We've said that recently because of some injuries. But, I mean, the first part of his career was Hall of Fame worthy. And, and look – when you do this kind of ring of honor thing, a lot of these stadiums uh, or some of them kind of have little wings of their stadiums. It's almost like a mini museum for some of these guys. And it's not just, yes, it's for the home, the home team fans. It's for Bengals fans. If the Bengals were to do this, obviously, but it's also a little bit for the visiting fans. They can go in and they can check out who some of these guys are. Some of these sports writers that maybe didn't watch these, these players and they have hall of fame votes um, maybe they get a little bit more in tune with some of this, some of these guys that are getting snubbed. I don't know, but you know, when you when you give proper attention to some of these great players, and and fortunately enough, we've had a couple of them on this program. Um, you know, it, it it brings more attention in general, and that helps the push of getting getting national exposure for these guys and Hall of Fame votes. Here's one thing I do know: if this is an actual Ring of Honor, and say Ken Riley is one of the first ballot inductees. He's still not going to be alive to see it. That that's what that's what hurts me the most. Like, like obviously, it's it's for fans and younger fans in general to learn. I guess the history of the, of the team that they're devoting themselves to, but also it's for the players. Like we had me and Daddy and Hoji, we had Max Montoya on uh, in the, back in the spring. We asked him about the lack of Ring of Honor there, and Max Montoya obviously finished his career with the Raiders, and he he mentioned that yeah, even in his short term with the Raiders, like he got the feeling that once you're a Raider, you're a Raider for life, which is interesting because the Raiders are one of the few teams left that don't have a ring of honor, which is shocking to me. But but like that, like he noticed the, the, the differences in how he was treated with Oakland and how he was treated with Cincinnati. But like it, it should be noted that it, it, you can't wait until these guys are no longer with you or, or they're so old to recognize what they did and what the impact they had on the organizations that they, that, that they, they gave their careers to. This week has been so tough. In sports media, we had Pedro Gomez, we had um, um, Perez, uh, Taylor Perez, I, I believe, from Yahoo Sports, and we also had Chris Wesling, who was a Cincinnati guy from NFL.com. We they all passed away. None of those guys were sixty years old. Like, and it, it was sad to see all those guys, you know, pass away and the the out the outcry of, of support for all of them. But it can't kind of it gave us a reminder like we can't wait until these guys pass away to, to give them the the, rec- the recognition and the praise that they, that they deserve. So if 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 this is now, if this is finally happening, that's great. It's better late than never, but 
we can't wait. We can't wait until it's too late to give these guys their their credit and the recognition. Yeah, and look, we we want to pat the Bengals on the back for sure. If this is where this is indeed heading, I mean, it's a small sign, and it's we're kind of running with a little bit of a rumor here. But I think a lot of people are running with that rumor at this point, and that's where this looks to be heading. And, and you got you got to pat the Bengals on the back because apparently they have been listening to a lot of different pleas from fans and groups and all that sort of uh, sort of thing to be to potentially create this. Um, but like you said, John, you know, when it is something big and it is something intentional, they are usually a little late to the late to the dance. Right. Um, when it when it when it comes to this kind of thing. So, you know, um, yes, it's a great thing. Hopefully that's what it what where this is headed and it turns into something very cool. But, uh, you know, it, it's it, it is overdue. I mean, I think I think we can all say that for sure. Let's let's transition a little bit, though. Um, the Bengals seem to be righting a wrong, if you will, um, whether it's of their own volition or the NFL snubbing them in one of their award shows. Before we move on to the Super Bowl, um, quickly, John, just an update in case a lot of people didn't hear about this. Joe Burrow is now um, getting set to run. Um, he's going to he's got a soft target date to start running, which is today which is exactly 10 weeks post left knee reconstructive surgery. And those words specifically are from Tyler Dragon of the Cincinnati Inquirer. So looks like Joe Burrow is on the track to rehabbing well. And, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be any setbacks at this point, which is good news. Yeah, and I think that's what he was alluding to in his first press conference back when he got back from California. He said like February was the target date or sometime in mid-February was the target date for him to begin that process of rehab so that just means what it means it means there's everything's going as scheduled according to plan and whatever recovery timeline he has he appears to be on track with that you know we, we don't we're not going to get very many updates on this you know we, we might get a, an occasional video to video or two but obviously you know you want to keep some of that stuff private so you don't want to have too much over analyzing and all that stuff so it's, it's only good news you know it's not unexpected because he did kind of say this but you know, it it just means everything's going as planned. Yeah. So, I mean, small update there, but, you know, when you're talking Joe Burrow and potentially getting healthier and on track to potentially start week one, you got to got to talk about it. Got to, I guess, wipe the wipe the brow and say, whew, sounds sounds like it's moving in the right direction for what it is. So um, we'll, we'll keep monitoring that. But as of now, it appears that Joe Burrow is entering the next phase of rehab process and we'll be running around a bit and so uh, you can check out some stuff i think we have some stuff on cincy jungle on that uh, like i mentioned tyler dragon of cincinnati cincinnati inquirer has some stuff on that and some other sources so go check out some details on that let's talk about the super bowl because it's going to segue nicely into our state your case i think um you know i i think the big takeaway and anyone who watches even a little bit of football obviously quarterbacks reign supreme um, pass catching talent, but I think the thing is, John, what what most people are pointing to is offensive line play and defensive line play in this game, and what what that meant in this specific matchup. It was the biggest, most glaring mismatch of the game. Like Tampa <laughs> yeah. Bay's offense, and or excuse me, Kansas City's offense and Tampa Bay's defense is going to be like. The, the highlight of the game because you had a, a great defense against a stacked offense. And the only problem is that offense had a terrible offensive line and the no Mitchell Schwartz, no Eric Fisher. You had backups at, the, at that spot. I think you had a backup guard in there as well. Like w- when we talked about the Super Bowl in our, in our round table, it was like, you know, if 
if Kansas City can somehow withstand that pressure from Tampa Bay, they they have a chance to you know pass all over them. And the exact opposite happened. Like it was the biggest mismatch, and they and Tampa Bay took advantage of that. And as it turns out, Mahomes is the most pressured quarterback in Super Bowl history. Like yeah. it was, he had he had no chance. And in honestly, looking back, we probably should have expected this. Like we should have known that this was going to happen. Not not just a maybe. We should have known it was going to happen. Shaq Barrett, JPP, Vita Vea, Dominican Sue, they're all too talented to not feast against whatever skeleton crew that Mahomes was was running behind. And and I think we all kind of knew that, you know, Mahomes obviously didn't play his best, but how could he? Like, like he, he can only do so much. And he is the quarterback that will do a lot of things on his own and will create out of out of structure and can kind of make sometimes his offense line look worse. But this was not a game to basically start that narrative of. He had no chance from the start. He did his absolute best. And if you have a terrible offensive line, even below average, like it's it's gonna it's gonna hurt you against against units like Tampa Bay. And Tampa Bay built that defense for games like this. And it was unfortunate for Kansas City that that's the offense line that they that they had in the most important game of the year. But it's just the way it went. Yeah, they didn't have either tackle. Eric Fisher tore his Achilles in the game before and was done. Uh, Mitchell Schwartz, I think, what, did he have a back issue or something that was bugging him for a long time? He's been out for a long time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he's been out for a while. Quietly one of the best tackles in the league um, when when healthy. So, you know, these are these are guys that were just sorely missed. And like you said, uh, by the way, how much did it pain, pain you to see Shaq Barrett ball out? Um, <laughs> uh, he, I mean, I, what do you have double digit pressures on the on the game? Seriously, I mean, it was it was I, I crazy. So. He he was winning and he was winning like quality wins. Like it was exactly what he did against Green Bay. So right, if if, if you can add any more salt in that wound, it was it was. <laughs> well, because he probably he probably should have been the t- he probably should have been the MVP of the game. Yeah. All things considered, he was so good. I I, I feel like when it, every time there was a drop back, he was he was in the backfield. I mean, I feel like every, every single time he was at least there, if not hitting Mahomes or pressuring him. I mean, he was just around around Mahomes. It seemed like every single drop back. It was just absolutely crazy. But um, you know, like you said, the, the defensive line and the and the pressure given uh, to P- Patrick Mahomes was really a, a major difference in this game, and it was kind of one of the very few times that you've seen. Uh, the great Patrick Mahomes looked vulnerable. I mean, he just, he kind of looked rattled a little bit and he was, he was unloading throws though, John, that were like, how did you even get that throw off? I don't, I have no idea how you got that throw off. And then guy, you know, when he did get the, the, you know, some of the passes, they were either, you know, some of them were contested catches, but guys were dropping them. It just, it just, a lot of things weren't working for the chiefs. And on the other hand, I mean, Tom Brady's Tom Brady. Uh, He had a couple of, of, miscues a little bit in the game but for the most part managed it well had a couple of great plays Gronk played very well and um, you know their super team that they constructed it had a bit of a hiccup in November but they showed up in the postseason they had three road wins in the in the postseason John and then they had the home game uh, in the Super Bowl to win it all I think they won yeah I think they won eight straight they they were seven and five and they won eight consecutive games. Obviously, all four that's crazy. Like it, 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 like that's not normal. That's not that's not predictable. Of course, it is predictable when you have the most balanced roster in the NFL and Tom Brady playing like he's like thirty three instead of forty three. So like it, it it is what it is. But going back to Mahomes, man, like I, I'm not saying that Joe Burrow is capable of making those throws, but he's capable of keeping plays alive 
in, in a way like that. Like nobody can make nope, nobody can throw when, when their body's perpendicular to the ground. Like that 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 drop on like fourth down, that that was literally a second baseman turning two on a double play. Like yeah, Holmes, yeah. Like he, he had he, he has baseball experience. Like that that is right. something that he and only like maybe a, a couple other quarterbacks can do. But we we've seen glimpses of Burrow, you know, buying time on his own and extending plays and and making throws, not not necessarily physical like crazy throws, but just like throws that he, he just sees something that no one else does. And you saw the respect that like I think I think NFL films posted like like a clip of just Buccaneers players like on the side, like how the hell is he doing this? He's a magician. Like there's obvious respect right. for him. And I think Burrow can eventually get to that. But that's the point. Like, as long as you have that quarterback, you have a chance. And this is just the one time, like, Kansas City didn't have a great offensive line for the season. They were basically average to above average. But, like, that that offense line is not sustainable at all. And I, I, I'm, I know Greg Rosenthal of NFL.com said, like, yeah, so it would be like Mahomes was playing behind the Bengals. That offense line was worse than what the Bengals had this year. Like, I think yeah. everyone yeah. who watches the Bengals knew that. But yeah, if you have that quarterback, you have a chance. You just have to make sure that you don't have glaring weaknesses there because a team like Tampa Bay, they'll eat you alive for it. Yep. Look, as unfor- the unfortunate case is when the Bengals are sitting at home, Super Bowl time, I-, I know I catch myself at times looking at it a little bit through a Bengals lens, you know, seeing kind of like, hey, you know, what what things I think last year, one of the things we talked about was what are the lessons the Bengals can learn from the Super Bowl teams? And I mean, you kind of look at it a little bit that way as we cover the Bengals, as we root for the Bengals, that sort of thing. Aside from, of course, Bengals need to shore up their offensive line. And they need to get edge rush help. What, what other little things did you see maybe from from those teams that made you say this is kind of where the path should be taking the Cincinnati Bengals in Joe Burrow's second year and beyond? Well, it's almost a, like a great philosophical idea here because like the nfl has slowly been moving away from like the seattle defenses like the like the single high cover three type uh, prototypes more to like a quarters look which is what tampa bay and kansas city have been uh have been um platooning in, in recent in we- recent weeks as the as the year ended but that was basically what tampa bay did like they built their defense to just be- have like quarters coverage take away those vertical routes from, from the chiefs receivers and yeah. to basically make mahomes you know think more than you usually has to do like usually you know hill or kelsey or cole like they're just running downfield wide open and some of these concepts that create space for them and right now the Bengals defense i think it's mainly just a single high defense with with bates as that free safety and bell working more towards the box they don't really have two safeties that can kind of play deep so they have to get creative and find ways to kind of counter out some of these offenses that like to attack vertically like because like this loss for the chiefs it's not going to set them back necessarily. They're still the Kings to beat in this conference. And if you want to get to the Super Bowl, you probably have to go through them. And not everybody has the defense that Tampa Bay has in terms of talent, in terms of coaching. Like, Lou Anarumo is not Todd Bowles. And what the Bengals have and what they can be in defense in 2021 is nowhere close to what, what Tampa Bay had in 2020. So they're going to have to find ways to adjust some of the things that they, they do schematically to beat some of these teams that can beat you like the Chiefs. Because they're not going to have that pass rush that will get to Mahomes 30 times in the game. I thought that when the Bengals, we talked about this on the show, I thought that when the Bengals were going to bring in Vaughn Bell, there was going to be a nice, still a nice role for Sean Williams in this defense. Now, he's not the the true center fielder type or a, a as rangy as a Jesse Bates, 
But you look you look back at his stats, John. I mean, five interceptions in 2018. He had three in 2016, two in 2015. I mean, he was he was making plays and and doing some different things as he evolved as an NFL safety. So I kind of feel like, to your point about playing two safeties deep and and maybe keeping Vaughn Bell up, I, I thought that that would maybe be a thing that. Lou Anarumo would do with Sean Williams and Jesse Bates, but now it even sounds like Sean Williams may be a cap casualty guy um, this year. And so to, to your point, I mean, they may need to go back to the drawing board a little bit there. It's true. And and offensively, I think we all knew that, you know, um, Kansas city weapons, like they're not really emulatable unless you get just these Supreme athletes everywhere. But I, I don't know if it was, if it was only me, but, like that Tampa Bay offense, it didn't look like the offense that Bruce Arians usually had for for most of the season. I, it really did look like like Brady just did everything that he did well in New England and brought it down for yeah. this game. A lot of short passes. There was play action seam routes to Gronk and and, and Cameron Braid. Like it was it was everything that we saw from Brady when he won the six rings. And that's an, another philosophical thing. Run the offense that your quarterback's most comfortable with. It took a long time for Brady and Arians to get on the same page for and with the, with that offense, even despite all the weapons that they had. And it wasn't about Mike Evans and Chris Godwin going deep. It was just about a lot of short, short passes, not a lot of air yards and letting Leonard Fournette cook behind a great offensive line. So, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat and the Buccaneers found the one that works best for them. That's definitely what I witnessed as well in terms of a little bit more controlled passing, a little bit more of the not so much the the Arians bombs away type of type of thing with which does seem kind of counterintuitive to say when you've got Antonio Brown, Mike Evans, a big, you know, a big guy who can also stretch the field a bit, Godwin, who can do a lot of different things. I mean, it kind of sounds counterintuitive, especially with what Arians likes to run. But like you said, they kind of seem to be on the same page. And in this game in particular, Gronk was a major factor and a major mismatch nightmare for the Kansas City Chiefs defense. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that that is where we're going to segue into our state your case and if you're new to this program or haven't listened to the past couple basically what john and i have been doing we kind of give a a i don't know hot take lukewarm take what have you try and back it up and if if the other host agrees awesome if not they let us know and uh if you let it (laughs) you're welcome to let us know as well but that's kind of a little bit about what what the state your case segment that we started a few weeks back is about so i'm going to state mine there's been a lot of, obviously, a lot of draft talk and a lot of talk about what the Bengals should do at number five overall. We've talked uh, on the listener questions program about, you know, draft options and all of that. As we sit here today, I think we all know, and the biggest takeaway that, like we said about the Super Bowl, is that the Bengals will need offensive line help. So what my state your case that I'm going to go into is predicated on the Cincinnati Bengals doing something significant on the offensive line in free agency. Uh, and, and it sounds like there's a lot of smoke signals that they will do that. It sounds like maybe Joe Tooney's 
in the mix, maybe Brandon Scherf, maybe one of the, you know, one of the tackles out there to replace Bobby Hart. Uh, there, there are some rumor mill things starting and it sounds like the Bengals are going to try and free up some space and do something significant there. So while nothing has happened yet, and if the draft were to be tomorrow, I think we would all say, okay, Penny Sewell there is there, Rashawn Slater's there, what have you. That's probably the pick, but I think they're going to do something significant in free agency, so that's where I'm prefacing this. When I looked at the Super Bowl, John, we we had the listener question show on Friday, and I was like, you know, my pecking order in the Super Show earlier that week, I said my pecking order at number five for the Bengals as we sat here last week was Penny Sewell, then it was Jamar Chase, and then it was maybe maybe a Kyle Pitts or, or somebody like that. Um, very very close in terms of the pecking order, but that's kind of where I was at. Now, believing that the Bengals would do something at least somewhat significant on the offensive line, let's just take Penny Sewell off, off the, the list there for a second for the sake of argument. As I watched this game I and looked back at the postseason, I began to really, really – keep my eyes glued to Rob Gronkowski and Travis Kelsey and what they bring to their offenses. And it's kind of like, no die, Anthony, if you've watched any football, of course, you know what these guys bring, but it just, as we continue to talk about the number five pick, as we continue to talk, maybe Kyle Pitts being an option. I, I just, I, I continue to kind of be a little bit more drawn to Kyle Pitts and I look at him. I know a lot of people say, well, the value at, at, at with those two letters, T E, with those two letters at number five, the value's not there. Well, if you, I, I said this last Friday. If you look at him as actually a position that's just kind of a flex position and not a TE, a guy who can split out at wide receiver, a guy who can play the slot, a guy who can go in line as a traditional tight end and do a lot of different things, I think that you, you begin to look at the pick a little bit differently. And I'm going to play this real quick as we talk a little bit more about Kyle Pitts. Hopefully this pops up for everybody Look, look, look here. Um, this is one of my favorite plays back shoulder and then dives for the ball. Um, you know, I, I think some of you have probably seen some of these, some of these uh, plays before another, I think this is another back shoulder one here. He goes, uh, goes up and get it. And, and look at this last one. I'm going to play it twice here. He's split out wide to the right. Yeah. It's the, it's the short side of the field, but he is split out wide and he makes a play as a wide receiver, basically. On the right side, see, if you look him on the top of the screen, he was split out wide there. So, look, this is a guy that can do a lot of different things, and you can line him up in a lot of different ways on the field. Where I'm going with this, John, Travis Kelsey in the postseason. Uh, January 17th against the Browns, eight catches, 109 yards, a touchdown. January 24th against the Bills, 13 catches, 118 yards, two touchdowns. And then February 7th against the Buccaneers, 10 catches, 133 yards, didn't get in the end zone, not really by his fault, but the team just kind of struggled to get into the end zone. Yeah, some of that was kind of garbage time stuff as Kansas City was trying to play catch up. But still, uh, you know, you look at this, what is that? Um, 31, 31 catches and close to, yeah, I mean, 350 yards about and three touchdowns in three postseason games. You go to Gronk, not the same factor, in the uh, throughout much of the postseason, I mean, you, you didn't have a catch against Washington, one catch, 14 yards against the Saints, one catch, 29 yards against the Packers, but six catches, 67 yards, and two touchdowns. And why, John? Because he is a matchup nightmare. And look, I think we we want 
the Bengals to get wide receiver help with the four impending free agents they have at that position group. We know they need to get offensive line help. I tend to think they're going to get edge rush help and offensive line help in free agency. I just continue now at, at just watching that game. I'm almost like, do I want the Bengals to draft Pitts more than Jamar Chase now? I, I think I might. I, I don't think anyone can like vehemently disagree with that because that would just be illogical. Because, I mean, just look at what Pitts is. Pitts is something along the lines of Kelsey and Gronk. Like, you should only want to invest heavily in that position if it gets you a player of that caliber. Yep. Like, and like looking at financially, looking at it in terms of value, like, it's only really worth it if you have truly an elite guy. And, like, I, I, this is really is Kyle Pitts week because I, I did a video on him back, back <laughs> Friday. Yeah. Like if if you have that one guy or like you know it, it, like if you have it like it, it gives you an advantage that not everyone else does have like obviously wide receiver is like a little bit more valuable in terms of just the financial purposes but like th- there is only one reason to get a guy like that is, is if he is on that level and I think he is on that level and no other tight end in this class there are a couple that are close but no other in this class has the best chance a better chance of getting to that level than Kyle Pitts so like if you have that opportunity it should absolutely be on the table regardless of what they do in free agency because looking at everyone else in this draft class uh, honestly is is there anyone with less risk than him aside from Trevor Lawrence in terms of just reaching their maximum potential and being a high quality NFL player he has checked literally every box he's young he's athletic he was productive. He's talented. Like there's nothing that you can really take away from him. And I guess the only things that you can be a little re- reluctant about is can you do the traditional tight end things? Well, who cares if he blocks? Who, who cares? Like George Kittle can? Sure. Rob Gronkowski can? Sure. You're not paying those guys 15 million a year to block. Like you're paying them to be these nightmarish mismatches in the passing game and give you and gives defenses fits like these guys have been around for 10 years and defenses still can't stop it travis kelsey was literally the chief's entire offense in that super bowl he was the only thing that worked in that game for the yep. chief's offense it, it was unfortunate when george kills is on the field and healthy he can make any 49ers quarterback good he's that good and he can line up everywhere and it's the same thing with pitts you can line him up in the slot you can go out wide you can be in line he can be in the backfield he's athletic enough to do anything that he wants and he's only going to get bigger only and he gets stronger. He's only like 240, but he's got this frame of like of Giannis in Antetokounmpo. He's 6'6". He's only 240 pounds. He's probably going to get to 250 by the time he reaches his, reaches his peak. And that's another thing. Like he's 20 years old. Who knows how better he can, he can get? He's going to be 24 by the time he gets his next contract. And that's usually when tight ends hit their peak production. So he's going to be in his mid-20s when he's making real money. And that's probably when you're going to see his best years. It makes a lot of sense for any team in the Bengals position to take him. Take a look at this. Uh, for those watching the video of our of our broadcast here, look, PFF draft, highest graded season since 2014 on offense. Kyle Pitts, the number one, 96.2. Look at number look who's number three, Penny Sewell from Oregon, 95.8. Uh, the last time he played football. So two very good players there who could be options for the Bengals at number five. But the best, the highest graded season by PFF standards by a college offensive player, Kyle Pitts. 96.2. Um, that's that says something there. This is the key to here, uh, John. A couple of a couple of great comments here. 
you know, Justin Ferris, don't forget what a healthy Tyler Eifert did for us. Yeah, he was a great security blanket, especially for Andy Dalton there, a guy who could move the chains, a guy who was successful in the red zone, and that is what the Bengals need. They were one of the worst teams in, in red zone offense last year with or without Joe Burrow. And then Frank Randolph says this, and this is the key. This is the key here. If we draft Pitts, Zach needs to change his play calling towards tight ends. I, I, I'm not saying that specifically, John, but my thing is if you draft this guy – you can use them a lot of different ways. You better be confident as a coach that if you're making that high of an investment in a player like this, you're going to use them because Tyler Tyler Eifert wasn't used properly initially. And if you're going to if you're going to use, if you're going to get this guy, if you're Zach Taylor, if you're Brian Callahan, you got to use him the right way. Here's the here's the thing. Like again, like it, once AJ Green's gone, they have at least a hundred targets that, that they need to fill in an offense. Mm-hmm. It's not just about replacing a player on on the depth chart in the starting lineup. It's about replacing that production. Like even with AJ Green on the field, like the Bengals' offense was not that productive. You don't expect AJ Green to be the same player that he was. They need to to compensate for that loss of production. You're not and if you draft Kyle Pitts fifth overall, you're not not throwing the ball to him. You know, like it's the same thing with drafting Jamar Chase. If you draft Jamar Chase, he's he's an immediate impact player in that offense, and he might get that those hundred targets. If you draft Kyle Pitts, I don't see why the same can't apply to that. You can play Kyle Pitts and CJ Zoma or Drew Sample on the field at the same time, and you're going to be fine because Pitts is athletic enough to stretch the field in the zone. He's quick enough to get off the line, regardless where he lines up on the line of scrimmage. Like you're going to get that production from him, and it's just a matter of if you're more confident. In term, from, from a long-term perspective in him over a guy like Jamar Chase. And again, I think we're both giant fans of Jamar Chase wouldn't have any yeah. qualms of drafting him. But this is it's not about Jamar Chase. It's about Kyle Pitts and giving the credit that he's due because he sure as hell deserves it. The Another kind of feather in the cap, I guess, a little bit when talking about Kyle Pitts being the guy at number five or the Bengals' first-round pick, whether they move back and get a pick or however that ends up working out for him. I mean... You can look at Thaddeus Moss, a guy that a lot of Bengals fans wanted, a far less athletic guy, not a guy who doesn't even possess the skills or size that Kyle Pitts does. 47 catches, 570 yards, and four touchdowns in the LSU offense with Joe Burrow at the helm. So Joe Burrow knows how to use these guys. And so that that makes me a little bit more comfortable to Frank Randolph's last comment about, you know, Zach better, you know, play dial up plays to this this kid it also comes down to the quarterback finding the open guy and finding the mismatch and i i have pretty pretty high confidence that joe burrow knows how to do that even though he's only entering his second season as a pro and another thing on, on top of that like let's just keep adding <laughs> no yeah, sure why, why, why the hell not I, I almost i almost feel like i lost my train of thought here but um like t higgins and immediately got into the starting lineup he got a, he got over 100 targets he was implemented greatly but also here here we go point that matt minnick made like last week, just as a pure receiver and, and, and a target, he fits exactly what you would expect Joe Burrow to be comfortable with. Like even more so than a Devonta Smith or a Jalen Waddle. Those guys are wide receivers. Sure. They may be faster for, you know, just terms like raw speed, whatever. So they can maybe take the top off of a defense more, but for what Joe Burrow has been productive with for guys who can handle those back shoulder passes, guys who can just go up and get the ball, but also just be, also quick enough to have some separation to their credit like Pitts fits exactly what you would expect Joe Burrow to be successful with and just like Jamar Chase is so if they're talking about drafting a pass catcher there Pitts deserves to be right with Jamar Chase as the top option there regardless of what position that you label him as yep that's our state your case talking some Kyle Pitts sounds like we're in 
a, a little bit of agreement there at least. Um, I know I know John likes Kyle Pitts a lot. I, I'm liking him more and more. And I as I watched the Super Bowl this last Sunday, I, I just started thinking about him and the Cincinnati Bengals offense and just what he could bring. And I just start uh, almost salivating a little bit. It just seems like a really good. It's a hard really not good, to. Yeah, it really is hard not to. And and I and I get all the all the questions about tight end, but you can't can't really look at it like that because he's just so much more. Yep. Exactly. We're going to get to John's got a free agency profile. We're going to get to in just a second because we got a comment from Andy Brown. You said you feel like we get OL edge help in free agency. Would love to to expand on that. So John will get on that in just a second. But just to remind you all, get this show however you can: iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, all that stuff. And please try and join us live on our YouTube channel and Cincy Jungle's Facebook page. Whenever we go live, we appreciate all the support. Well, to answer Andy Brown's question, I feel like that's primarily what we've been talking about for the past month. Like, there's all these crumbs about rumors of the Bengals no recognizing the fact that their offense line is not good enough, and the draft is not going to be enough to fix it. Like, even if you draft Panay, even if he's a great pick at that point, he does not solve your issues at offensive line. There are still multiple spots along there that need to be addressed. And in all, and in all likelihood, Panay might not might not even be in the conversation come draft time because they're probably going to have an offensive tackle that's signed, and they're going to be comfortable in that guy starting. Like that is a position that they cannot go into the draft needing a guy at fifth overall's pick because that's just not utilizing the draft well. It's not what we should expect the Bengals to do based on what we're hearing, based on what has been reported for the last month, and based off just pure logic. So, what are the Bengals going to do? at the offensive tackles position, specifically at the right tackle, right? Like that's right. Like right now they have Jonah Williams, left tackle, right tackle needs to be filled. Unfortunately, right tackle market is not tremendously strong. There's Taylor Moden. There's Darrell Williams. And there's a pretty big drop off after that. Moden for all intents and purposes could be brought back by Carolina. He's like their top priority, according to Carolina's athletic uh, beat reporter. So he's either going to get franchise tag probably, or maybe they work out a deal. So we can't, rely on Moden being available on the open market. Dare Williams is a more realistic option, but the Bills could have liked what they saw from him and decide to bring him back, even if they have not a lot of cap space. So those guys could be available. They could not they might not may, they may not be available. So the Bengals are going to have to have other options aside from those guys. One of the options that I think we should be talking about is Cam Robinson. Now we've talked about right tackle. Cam Robinson is a career left tackle and that opens up a whole nother dialogue. Like he was a left tackle for three years at Alabama. He's been a left tackle for three years at with the Jacksonville Jaguars. He missed the 2018 season, basically all of it with an injury, but he's primarily stayed a left tackle. The first, the last year at Alabama when he was a left tackle, Jonah Williams played on the same team as him in Alabama. He was at right tackle. Jonah Williams is a quality right tackle as a true freshman with Alabama. So that opens up a whole nother thing. Like if the Bengals miss out on their prime targets at tackle, at right tackle, and they still feel the need to go out and sign a guy, K. Robinson just kind of makes sense because of how young he's only 25 years old with starting experience. It's a second round draft pick. There's varying opinions on what he is as a player right now. I think from the majority of Jaguars fans, they recognize that he's a quality, he's a decent player, but there just seems to be a consensus of, yeah, I don't think the Jaguars are going to bring him back. They're probably going to look at more serious options to upgrade a left tackle. And it's true. Like Cam Robinson is at best a decent starter. And a decent starter would be an upgrade over what the Bengals have had at right tackle for many years. But if you bring in Cam Robinson, what does that mean for Jonah Williams? Do you put 
Cam at left tackle and basically redo the 2016 Alabama line with Jonah at right tackle, or you make Cam Robinson play a brand new position that he's never played before. I think Cam Robinson is a guy that they will you know, bet their savings on being an improved player under Frank Pollock's tutelage as a guy who can still improve because of how young he is, but he also has experience starting at, a, at an important position. It's just, it's just really going to depend on where they actually play him at, but Cam Robinson just seems like the Trey Wayne signing of the season where it's a, it's a name and it's a guy with a lot of experience, but there's also going to be a heavy price tag with him compared to, I guess, how good he is. Like Trey Wayne's is a solid starter, but nobody expected him to get the contract that he got. Cam Robinson might be in, in that same boat where just because of the position that he plays, he'll get a decent bag that comes with it. But maybe like, yeah, maybe this guy hasn't quite earned it with, with what he's played like, but he just seems to fit the bill of, you know, a, a guy with with the draft status, a guy with the experience, and a guy you know starting at a premium position. It just seems like, and also with with the experience that he has with Williams with Jonah, it would it would just kind of make sense if they miss out on the top targets. Overall PFF score looks like uh, for twenty twenty was sixty one point eight. So nothing to blow your hair back necessarily, but I I do like the idea, John. I think they're I I, I like the age. Right. I mean, it's not a guy that you're, you know, it's not a rental deal type of thing where you're just throwing a bandaid on, on the offensive line. It sounds like something that could be a viable option for two plus maybe three or more years. Right. Um, the, the question, like you said, he seems to be an ascending player, a guy who's hitting his stride a little bit, but how, how much of an ascension is there? How high is that ceiling? I don't know. And, and, your your question is a valid one in terms of what the Bengals will do on offensive line. I, it's is he going to embody a guy who just entered the news cycle the last couple of days, uh, Orlando Brown? Whereas I'm a left tackle, I'm, I'm a left tackle only, and and I want to get paid as such. Um, or is he willing to make the sacrifice and play right tackle if the price tag, you know, if the Bengals are willing to put the price tag out there? Um, and if you know, a lot of us sit here and say, "Oh, it's easy enough. Get, kick Jonah to right tackle." I mean, it's a, it, it is a different position, and. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing a tweet from Mark Schlereth, a guy who won a few Super Bowls with the Broncos. You know, he he kind of <laughs> he kind of made a, an interesting parallel in terms of uh, you know kind of using different hands and all kinds of different stuff when you when you swap sides on the offensive line. So uh, for some, it's an easy switch and it's a more productive switch. For others, it may not be. Jonas played the right side, like you said. So I, I, I in college at least, so that's appealing. Um, you know, I, I think this would be a, a solid move. I wouldn't be, you know, as excited as I would be with a Toonie or sure for Moton, but I think this would be a, a decent move for them. Yeah, and like again, like if they if they sign him, and the question is who plays which spot, my first guess would be Jonah moves to right, just because that's what's happened before when these two guys were on the same team, and because Cameron, I don't know, I don't know the last time Cam Robinson's played right tackle if he's ever played right tackle in his career like a guy who is a, a top recruit for Alabama and he starts for four for three years at left tackle I'm assuming he's a left tackle in high school or that he's never been at the right side before there's no value in me having him play a position that he's never played before and honestly a position that's probably more that's probably more valuable at this point like you're facing TJ Watt two times a year you're facing Miles Garrett you're facing right. Matt Judon for the Ravens like right tackle 
If it's not more important than left tackle, it's just as important. I know it's the blindside narrative. I get it. I was not alive when Joe Theismann died from Lawrence Taylor, so I, I don't have that ex- that view and experience. But I'm telling you right now, the best pass rushers, they face right tackles. It makes it more valuable, even though the contracts do not reflect it. Do not get at me in the comments with this. I know I'm right. Right tackle is more important than left tackle. And if I had the choice, I would put my better tackle at right tackle because they face the better competition. And I understand that's the blind side and get Joe Burrow hurt. But if you're asking me to play two guys at each tackle spot and one of them has never played right tackle, I'm not asking that guy to play right tackle. That's a very valid point. Jaguars last year, uh, one of the worst in terms of rushing yardage as a team, just 1,519 yards rushing, a 4.5 yards per carry average. Now, that's not just indicative of, of uh, Robinson, but you know he is part of that unit, nine touchdowns. Um the, the rookie uh, had a very good year. His name escapes me at the moment, but he had a very good year for them. Um, but, you know, look, I, I, it, I think this is one of those manageable, palatable contracts that the Bengals can put together. And it, it's a guy that would be an upgrade. It would not be, you know, an astronomical upgrade over what they have and how they would piece it together. But potentially you could, you know, I mean, I, I liked certain things that I saw out of Jonah Williams at left tackle last year. Unfortunately, his season got cut short. Um, There were some growing pains, but there were some nice moments. But, I mean, theoretically, you can say, well, if Cam Robinson's got more experience at left tackle, he's been playing at a a relatively high level, and then you move Jonah over to right, which you presume would be an upgrade over Bobby Hart, you're potentially upgrading two positions with one acquisition on the offensive line. Yeah, and if Jonas stays left tackle, I think he'll be a better left tackle than Ken Robinson is. That's that's fine. But if you're wanting to improve the offense line as a whole and just get at least average guys at each spot, like a, a situation that the Bengals haven't been in five years, like that's that's an upgrade. And if you have to pay a little bit more for that just to get that secured, I think that's fine because they can't sign nobody right tackle. Yeah, and and I, I think this was a great free agency profile to put out there, John, because. I think a lot of Bengals fans are just, you know, really honed in on, and, and rightfully so, kind of the top names, Tooney, Scherf, Moton, and and you put out two very viable, in your free agency profiles, two very viable options at as, as tackles um, in, in Darrell Williams and in um, Robinson here. So I, I think those are, those are options that are very realistic for the Bengals and could be upgrades for them. So... Good and job and your, guy, Matt, your guy, your guy, your yeah, your guy, Matt Filer, though he he's had some right tackle experience too. So there are yeah. there are definitely some options that the Bengals are going going to look at in case they're not going to be able to get some of these top guys. Yep. Well, good stuff, John. We're going to drop the mic and get on out of here. This episode flew by talking Super Bowl, talking Kyle Pitts, talking Ken Riley, Ring of Honor, and free agency profile. What do you what do you have for us as we bounce on out of here, John? Yeah. So everyone. For starters in the Cincinnati area, stay safe right now. Um, it's snowing like crazy. Anthony wouldn't know anything about that. I don't think he's ever seen <laughs> snow in his life. Um, but yeah, make sure to stay off the roads if you can. And also, shout out to the Cincy Jungle Twitter. We just got verified, I think, within the last day, I'm assuming. I'm not entirely sure, but um, I don't know. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Kinda cool seeing that check mark. So shout out to us. <laughs> Yeah, validates validates a lot of things. So um, I, I like that. That's good stuff. Uh, I just you, you touched on. I don't want to belabor it, but you know, you you mentioned a, a few, a just a, a really odd 
and scary time for sports writers. Um, Therese yeah. Paler of, I, I think he was of uh, the, the Kansas City Star and maybe Yahoo. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, there was uh, Colin Cowherd. I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about him, but he had a really bad health scare. He had a blood clot in his lung, um, had to be rushed to the hospital and emergency room. Pedro Gomez of ESPN, um, you know, and then it, it, Chris Wessling, you mentioned him. It's just, uh, you know, uh, it's just a, a really scary thing. And, you know, it just makes you kind of say, you know, no, no day is promised. So, um, you know, our condolences to those families that the bad news kind of just kept coming throughout this week with more and more issues to those that cover sports. And, uh, you know, it sounds like Colin Cowherd's going to make a recovery. So that's, that's good. But, you know, the others, unfortunately, you know, their families and friends are grieving and they, they the impacts that they had on, on their respective sports they covered were, very well known. If you followed Twitter, if you followed all kinds of different outlets that covered their passing, um, you would have seen that. So uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention some of those guys. I know we, I know we grew up following, you know, some of those guys. And like you said, Wesling was a Bengals guy for a while, right? I mean, he was a Bengals yeah. fan, right? Yeah, I think he was a he became a, a dejected Bengals fan towards the end, <laughs> right, rightfully so. He covered yeah. the entire NFL. You kind of see this other better stuff out out there, but I think Wesling was was unfortunately battling cancer for the better part of I think two or three years and he 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 beat it initially and it kinda kinda came back. But like Stuart Scott said, you know, a few years ago, you don't beat cancer by surviving, you beat cancer by the way that you live. And I think that he definitely embodied that. Fortunately I'm not entirely sure why Pedro Gomez and uh Therese Paler passed away so young, but it again, like it, it's nice to see these guys being appreciated on on Twitter and stuff, but it's also it also would be nice if we kind of kind of did that to some people before they unfortunately passed. So yeah. a, a, a little bit morbid, but Anthony, I, I appreciate you, man. I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to, don't, don't want to wait to say that, you know, I appreciate <laughs> you now. And I think, I think all of us do as well. I, I appreciate that, man. And you, yeah, you're the man, you know, you know, I, you know, I got nothing but love for you, John, you, uh, you bring it every episode. So thank you. And uh, thanks to all of the listeners out there. We appreciate you too. I uh, wasn't trying to get super sappy or anything like that, but you know, it need, needed to be said. I feel like, you know, there's been some prominent names that unfortunately we've lost really in the last like calendar week. It's pretty crazy. So, um, you know, our thoughts with, with their friends and family for sure. That's going to do it for us this week. Great show, John. I appreciate, I appreciate everything that uh, you brought to the table this weekend, as you always do. Thanks everybody. Stay safe. As John said, with that crazy weather, if you are in the Cincinnati area and we will see you next time. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.